Good morning to everybody. Great to be here today. What a blessing. What a blessing. Appreciate John reading that particular passage of scripture for us. And that's going to uh, introduce us back into our series on uh, basic Bible teachings. Now, if you're visiting with us, we're so thankful you're here. You're a blessing to us, and we pray that it'll be a blessing to you to be with us this morning as we study God's word and worship him and uh, really try to grow spiritually because faith comes by hearing the word of God. If you have not yet done so, hopefully you'll take a time to fill out a visitor's card in the back of the seat in front of you. Just leave it on your seat so we have a record of your presence here today. If you have any questions, please ask us. We simply want to be the church that we all read about in the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Nothing else. This is the fourth lesson in this particular series of basic Bible teachings. And these are just basic, fundamental teachings of Christianity. Now we began by talking about the most basic of all, and that's belief in God. We followed that by talking about just as basic, belief in Christ as our Lord and Savior, God the Son. We followed that up by talking about how the Bible is our authority as to what to believe and teach and practice. It's basic also. It is God's very word. Now, how can we follow up those first three very positive basic Bible teachings or doctrines? And the word doctrine simply means teaching. Well, we need to understand that just as basic is belief in God and belief in Christ, the fact, and I emphasize the word fact, underline it, highlight it, that God exists and Christ exists just so we need to understand that we can be equally, absolutely certain that the devil also exists. The devil also exists and he is real and powerful as a force in this world. Now, I think people, and I was surprised Mark brought this out. I had not seen that particular survey yet. And sometimes you wonder about how surveys are taken and how they're calculated and so on. But I understand that that is the trend to a great extent in our culture, in our country today. So he brought out, he said that he, he just had, had heard a survey that said at the end of the survey, and I don't know what all kinds of questions were asked in there, usually a, a number of different kinds of questions, but it said that 60% of the people in our country no longer believe in either heaven or hell. Well, if you don't believe in heaven or hell, how far behind is your disbelief in God and Christ? And certainly, if you don't believe in heaven or hell, and I think a lot of times that's, that's a, a position arrived at because people don't want to have to be responsible. They don't have to be, want, want to have to be amenable to have to answer for their sinfulness. And so if you can get rid of heaven and hell, then you've gotten rid of the devil as well, right? They don't stop and think about if you've gotten rid of heaven, then how, again, where is God in that picture? Where is Christ in that picture? Where is the cross in that picture? And his sacrifice thereon for us. Again, it's not very far down the road till you start saying, you know, I'm just not sure if even God exists or Christ exists. I'm not sure if he ever went to that cross. I'm not sure if there ever was anybody who called himself the Christ, the Messiah, 
the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah to come. We need to be careful. Now, I think that there are two concepts about the devil that are popular, that are very prevalent among, in, in the minds of many people. Now, the first one is, the devil's not real. The devil's not real. There is no real devil. He is fictitious. He is an invention of fanciful imagination. And then the second one is, well, they would say, yeah, I, I think the devil is probably real. But you know, he's pretty impotent. He's not very powerful. He's pretty much innocuous as an entity. And I don't think he can really do much harm. And so here is the kind of cartoon image we have of him as about four feet high, and he's got these little horns sticking out, and he's got this long pointed tail at the end. He's kind of, you know, looks like he's been dressed in, in comical pajamas and so on. He's got this pitchfork in his hand, but it's not very big. And, and so you just think he's not really that powerful. Can't really do that much. We want to push him out of our mind because we don't want to have to be responsible for disobedience to God and Christ and the scriptures. And so we got to get rid of the devil somehow. Well, the scriptures tell us, and they are repetitive and they are plain and they are straightforward and they are emphatic that the devil is just as real as is God the Father and God the Son and just as real as is the Bible being God's very word, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Now, 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 the apostle Peter wrote by inspiration, by guidance from God through the Holy Spirit, be sober, be vigilant. Now those are both strong statements. Vigilant, on guard, be ready, be perceptive, be aware. Because your adversary, and that word adversary means one who stands against you, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, and there's an imagery there. Nobody would want to be in the presence of a roaring lion, of a wild beast of the jungle, and especially we think about he's, he's hungry, right? Now, and that's the image again that Peter is portraying. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your enemy, if you want to boil it down in, 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 in a very succinct form, the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so Peter, he does anything but kind of just do away with the devil. He's, he's saying he is real, he's powerful, he is your enemy, he seeks your personal spiritual destruction. And let me tell you, the devil is the worst, deadliest, and most dedicated and committed enemy you and your loved ones will ever face. No enemy on this world compares with the enemy that is the devil himself. Now, in the creation account, Genesis chapter 1, we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit. All there present at the creation. We can look at different passages of scripture from Genesis chapter 1 to John chapter 1 to Colossians and so on that tell us that Jesus or the Christ, God the Son, was right there at the creation, in the creation 
uh, business. He was nothing, nothing was made that was made except through him. We'd see the Holy Spirit there, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And we see God right at the beginning. And we pointed this out, in the beginning, God, he was already there. He is eternal. The Holy God, the Son is eternal. God, the Spirit is eternal. He was right there and he brought about the creation. Everything that we see around us, including all that we can't yet observe throughout the universe, God is there, was there. God is the creator. He put it all together to work in such a synchronous and harmonious fashion. Now, shortly after God created everything and all animal life, all plant life, then what I consider the crown of his creation, he created mankind. He created man unique in that he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he put man in dominion over everything else that he had created on this earth. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. But then not long through the scripture account, we don't know how many years that might have been, how many months it might have been, how many weeks or days or whatever, but the devil shows up on the scene. He's right there quickly after God has brought mankind into existence, the devil makes his appearance. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. He's on the scene. So the verse, the, the text begins. Now the serpent and the devil took the image of the serpent. We understand that. That's obvious. The serpent is simply, the, and again, an illustrative kind of, of imagery again. And did he actually take the form of a serpent? Perhaps so. But we, it, the text understands it's the devil talking here. So the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree <clears throat> which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Now if you go back to Genesis chapter two and verse 17, She's talking about and she's describing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life was there in the garden as well. And as long as the, the, that first couple and any offspring that they would have had while still in the garden, as long as they continued to eat the fruit of the, of the tree of life, they would live forever, sinless. But there was also that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you don't, you don't touch it. You don't, you don't eat any of that fruit, you don't even touch it, lest you die. And so, she, so she's reciting this to the devil in response to his question, has God not given you the fruit of the trees to eat? And she said, yep, yep, we can eat the, fruits, the fruit of the trees in the garden, except for that one, that, except for that very one. And so the devil then responds, the devil responds, you shall not surely die. Now that was abs an absolute lie. He uses deception also upon her to deceive her into thinking the fruit of the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil will be a good meal. In fact, it's going to make you wise. It's going to make you like God, knowing good and evil. But that's deception. And it's not going to make her like God in power, in grace, 
in reality, but she is going to come to learn, understand the difference between good and evil because she's going to become a sinner when she partakes of that fruit. If the devil can persuade her to do so, and he does. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, can you imagine what must have gone through Eve's mind, her imagination? If you look at, at, at Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 2, you get the impression God was there, at times at least, right there with that first man and woman, speaking to them in a presence with them. And so the devil tells Eve, you're going to be like God. I mean, they could observe everything around them and who knows what, what power God might have shown them that's just not recorded in scripture. But the devil says, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the devil was skillful at making sin look good and righteous and desirable and pleasant. He uses all kinds of temptations to allure us into that kind of deception. So she saw that the tree, at least as it appeared to her, was good for food, that it was desirable to the uh, pleasant to the eyes, and, and, and a tree desirable to make one wise, because the devil had said, you're going to be like God, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then everything changed. I mean, everything changed that day, at that moment. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now they had been naked before they ate, ate of that particular fruit, but they were sinless and there was no shame. But now they had sinned and they looked at everything through a different lens, if you would. A different reality had swept over them because now they were sinners. Now they were sinners. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, the devil used at least two different avenues of temptation to work on the woman and through her upon the man. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, John the apostle wrote, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. The devil skillfully used two of those avenues of temptation, and those are three basic avenues that he uses on mankind, but he used the lust of the eyes. The tree looked like it was pleasant. It looked like it was good for food. And the pride of life, you're going to be like God, he told her. But that was the devil speaking and not God or his word. Sin is of the devil. All sin is of the devil. And now again, if you can get rid of the idea that the devil is real, then you've automatically eliminated sin also, haven't you? So you're not responsible for anything you do. But let me tell you, and I've emphasized this over and over and over again through many years of teaching and preaching. You don't want to be in a world. You don't want to be in a country. You don't want to be in any setting that 
is devoid of God in the minds of the people in that particular setting or country or world. You have not seen darkness from a moral perspective like you would see in that kind of reality. Because without God, there is no good, there is no goodness, there is no righteousness. And you can simply refer back to Genesis chapter 5 to understand what that reality ultimately can bring about. Because in verse 6, it says of the people of that day that we're talking about everybody, basically, with the exception of one family, Noah and his family, that every thought and imagination of their heart was only, underscore that word only, evil continually. The devil had had his day up until that point. But God cleansed the world at that time through the flood. He started over from scratch with just that one family, Noah and his family. All sin is of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. John wrote, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins and the tense of the Greek verbs in this particular text, where John uses these kinds of statements several times, the tense of the, Greeks were, of, the, of the Greek verbs, if I understand them correctly, is the idea that he who continues to live in sinfulness on an ongoing basis is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested brought into this world in physical form that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whatever has been born of God does not sin, does not continue to live in sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. He cannot live that life if he's truly been transformed as we can read about in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, we can understand, we can quickly recognize the difference between those who are walking with God by his word and those who are living by the, by the lead of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. If a person is not practicing righteousness... He's walking with the devil. That's the long and the short of it. Ever since the devil led mankind into sin in Eden, the world has been under his sway. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. We know that we are of God and the world, the whole world, lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now you might scratch your head and say, well, you know, I, I have family members. I have friends. They're good people. I know that they're, they're trying to live a righteous life. Now, we're talking from a general perspective here. Look at all the evil all around us, all over the world, all over through this country. Look at all the things that are going on, and it's on an ongoing basis. And so from that general perspective, John writes, and again, guided by God through the Holy Spirit to write what he was writing, the whole world is, lies under the sway of the wicked one. Which direction is this world going? 
Is this world living a life, basically? If you can think about all of the world as, as humanity, are, are, is this world living a life that is headed toward heaven? Are they living a life that is respectful of God and living by his teachings, or is it exactly the other way around? And I think we understand the answer to that, that, that question, don't we? It's the other way around. The, the, the world is going in the opposite direction of, from godliness. Notice how the Lord describes the devil. And we're not going to look at all of the descriptions. But John chapter 8 and verse 44. <clears throat> Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You know, Jesus didn't pull any punches there, did he? In describing the character of the devil. And also those who were listening to him, who probably many of whom were not believing in him at that particular time. Now, notice how Paul writes about the devil. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Okay, lawless one, the devil, Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, as we said, he is a definite power in this world. And the fact that the world has gone away from God largely and has become evil to a great extent, that demonstrates his power to lead people into sin. He uses various devices to do that. Primary is temptation, but again, through all kinds of deception and lies. So the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Jesus said he's the father of lies and with all unrighteous deception among those who, are, who, who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So think about what Paul said there about the devil. He's the author of lawlessness, of deception, and of opposition to the truth. Opposition to the truth, and especially the truth of God's word. The devil strives to keep people away from obeying God's word and thereby keep them away from obeying God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, Paul writes, and a veil, you know, it covers someone's face and obscures their vision to some extent at least. If it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And it's not the idea that, that the gospel puts that covering over their eyes so they can't see clearly. It's the devil has led them, allured them into not seeing the truth of the gospel and respecting it and obeying it. So if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God, lowercase g, now there's another description of the devil and his influence in this world, not God, uppercase g, God the Father with that kind of power, but lowercase g, one who is powerful influence in this world 
whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now there's another, again, description or identification of the devil and his power upon upon this earth. And it's not because he can overcome people, but he overcomes them with temptation. And they succumb to that temptation. But it's their choice. It's not, it's not that they cannot choose to not go along with the sinfulness that he is tempting them to get into. They make the choice to go into that sin on their own. The devil has no part with Christ. On the night of his betrayal, he's with the apostles. And Jesus tells them, I will no longer talk much with you. He knew that he would be on the cross the next day. And so he's preparing them, trying to prepare them. They did not fully understand at this particular point. But he says, I will no longer talk much with you. Now, the next day they would understand because they'd see him on that, uh, he would be on that cross. Not all of them would be there to look upon the cross physically, but John would be there. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Now, the ruler of this world, another description of the power of that, that the, the devil exercises through his temptation to lead people away from God and godliness, away from obedience to God, the ruler of this world. And Jesus says he has nothing in me. Now, terms used to identify the devil in a very pointed way, also identify the devil's character, his nature. So we go to a really succinct text of scripture. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Now we're talking about, I believe, pre-humanity and before Genesis chapter 1 in the creation. I believe we're looking here, we don't have time to go into the greater text in Revelation chapter 12, but I believe we're talking about a period of time before God had even created mankind. But yet it blends that creation and humanity in with what is talked about, if, again, if we read the, the, the fuller text here. But I want us to focus upon verse 9 because it demonstrates the identity and the nature of the, of the devil through these terms of identity. So the great dragon, now what would we think of as the great dragon? What would we think of as as to the imagery of a dragon? A foreboding image, obviously, foreboding image of fierceness and danger. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, obviously looking back toward his deception of Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of humanity. The devil, and we just use that word pretty loosely and freely. We understand who we're talking about, but it it, it has a meaning, a basic fundamental meaning, and that is the slanderous one, the false accuser, and then Satan, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Satan is a transliteration, that name, that word is a transliteration from the Aramaic language of satana, And it originally meant one lying in ambush for somebody. And so all of these in one verse of scripture 
describe the identity and the character, the nature of the devil. And there's nothing positive about it. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing sweet about it. It portrays him as, as, as a horrible being and one who is out to do us in, every single one of us, if we will succumb to his temptations. He cannot overpower us against our will, but if we turn our will over to him, then he's got us until we repent of that. The great dragon, serpent of old, the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, remember again, Peter adds another description that we've already talked about in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary one who stands against you. The devil is not our friend. He's not your friend, not in the remotest imagination within your mind. He is your absolute bloodiest, most determined, most deadly enemy that you ever can face. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, no wonder we are encouraged, instructed, admonished. Make your home with God. Make God your companion, your protector. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And how do we do that? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And there's no place, no room in the life of any individual for God and the devil to coexist together. They are absolute opposites of the spectrum. They're not, there's no harmonious possibility for them to be together in the life of an individual. So resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We've got to make up our minds. We've got to come to grips with reality on the spiritual side of life within the spiritual realm and recognize the devil is our enemy. And we need to give him no place in our life. Ephesians 4 and verse 27, we need to give him no opening, no opportunity, no room in your life. And we need to not toy with temptation and sin. How close can we get to the line of sinfulness, of actually committing a sin without committing it, without actually doing it? That should not be our mindset. Our mindset should be, I don't want to get anywhere near that line. I don't want to get anywhere near that sin. I, I want to just make sure I stay as far away from the allurements and the temptations the devil throws at me as is possible. I want to stay away from all that completely. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, we're, going to, we're not going to read the whole text all the way through verse 18, but the Apostle Paul lays out the implements of the Christian armor that God has presented for us, that he has enabled us to be able to wear from a spiritual perspective on a daily basis, to be able to defeat the devil, to be able to resist him. 
I want to bring out a couple of verses. Verse 11 of, 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 of chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That you may be able to successfully defeat the devil as he works on you or tries to work on you in your life. Verse 16, notice how this text portrays what the devil is trying to, to do to us, to pull us away from God. He, it's, it's a portrayal of warfare on a spiritual level. And the devil is at the center of that war. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, if you look at that text in full, you'll see it talks about the shield of faith. It talks about the sword of the spirit being the word of God. It talks about the helmet of salvation, the shoes that are, that are really kind of mimicking the shoes that, that the, the uh, uh, Roman soldiers would wear into battle that would enable them to not give ground because of the way they were designed on the soul. All of that, all of that is portraying a warfare kind of reality, but on a spiritual level. The devil is against us. He's making war on us. But God has said, just be patient, be determined, walk with me, hold on to my hand. Again, what does James say? Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And in doing so, we will resist the devil and, and, and God's word says he'll flee from you. The good news, the good news is that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Now that was prophesied way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. After that first man and that first woman sinned and ate of that fruit that God warned them, don't eat of that fruit. Don't eat of that fruit. Stay away from that tree. But they disobeyed and they became sinners. In the 15th verse of Genesis chapter 3, God already had the plan for man's redemption if they would come back to him. He already had it in mind. Christ was going to come to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3 and verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. There's going to be a final day of judgment. But when that day comes, it's too late for us to repent. I think we can understand clearly from the way the scriptures lay out that day. But on that day, the devil is going to be crushed. The devil is going to be defeated soundly and forever. But we don't want to wait for that day. We don't want to take the chance of our not being ready. We want to be ready for that day all the time by walking with God in faithful obedience. Because you see, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We want that to be our reality. Christ is coming back because he has already paid the price for the guilt of our sins if we will come to him as our savior, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith in him openly, and surrendering to him to be baptized 
into him for the remission of our sins. Then that blood that is shed on the cross will be absolutely effective to cleanse us of all of the guilt of our sins individually through our obedience to him. Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28, it is appointed unto men to die once. Physical death is a reality. Why? Romans 6, 23. Remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. You don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't get into sin because the wages of sin is death. It is appointed to man to die once. But after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The ultimate reality of death is eternal death, eternal condemnation. The eternal state of dying and going through all of those torments in hell. But again, the gift of God. If we will resist the devil, if we will draw near to God, if we will walk with God, if we will cleanse our hands, repent of our sins, if we'll be baptized into Christ, if we will walk that righteous life that identifies us as being of God and of Christ. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And we will be ushered into our eternal home through those pearly gates to walk on those golden streets. A place where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more dying, no more pain, no more tears. The absolute opposite of what we experience here on this earth. The absolute opposite. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. Many people think I can't live that life. God would not ask you to do something impossible. And so Paul wrote, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, what you are able to say no to but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God has already promised you don't have to sin. The devil cannot beat you. He cannot overwhelm you against your will. And if you will walk with me, I will assure you, I will set the safeguards that you will not have to be overwhelmed by any temptation to sin that the devil throws at you. You can beat the devil. You can beat the devil through Jesus Christ. You can't beat the devil by yourself, but you can beat the devil through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word victory. And then... 1 John 4 and verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you, if you're walking with God, if you're walking with Christ, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Greater than the devil, in other words. Don't let the devil win. And he can only win in your life if you let him win. Don't let the devil win. Come to Jesus for ultimate victory. And he's waiting to give it to you. If you need to come, if you need to be baptized into Christ, if you need to study God's word, 
All you have to do is step forward or talk with us privately and let us know. If you need the prayers of the church to get back on track after having gone astray, having come to God through Christ initially and then succumb to the temptations of the devil again, we're ready to pray with you and for you if you'll just please step forward and let us know or talk with us privately. The devil cannot win against your will. Don't let the devil win. Come to Jesus for ultimate victory as we stand together and sing.